Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. Thanks for joining us today. We are covering today the true cost of war. We talk about the controversial blockbuster movie, American Sniper. And we also talk about Americans' obsession with violence. We have a great guest today, but first, it's that time of year. It is the 10th annual Podcast Awards and we are hoping to take home the gold in the education category. So please, if you wouldn't mind, take one minute, go to podcastawards.com, and you'll see a bunch of categories. You can just scroll to the education category. There's podcast name, which is just Smart People Podcast, and our URL, which is smartpeoplepodcast.com. And then just submit your vote. We really appreciate it. We'll keep you updated on the results. Voting ends February 6th, so just literally a couple days. Head on over one time. That's all we ask. One submission per email, podcastawards.com in the education section. So thanks for that. This week, we are talking with David Morris. David is a former Marine infantry officer, and then he went on to be a reporter in Iraq from 2004 to 2007. He just came out with a brand new book called The Evil Hours, a biography of post-traumatic stress disorder. And in this episode, we talk about PTSD. We cover that specifically at the end, but we kind of cover the gamut. What happened to him when his Humvee was blown up and on fire? 
How did it affect him afterwards when he returned home? What is it like for those who have PTSD? The sheer amount of people who have PTSD now is continually growing. It's an American issue, a Western issue. We talk about why. Why why is it that Americans suffer from this more than any other country in the world? We also talk about, as I mentioned, the new movie American Sniper and how David is actually no longer able to watch movies like this and what he thinks they're doing to our society. I found this conversation sobering, fascinating, informative. I think you will as well. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Feel free to reach out to us at smartpeoplepodcast.com. You can see our favorite quotes from the episodes, past episodes. Check them out. And again, don't forget podcastawards.com. Here it is, our interview with former Marine and war reporter David Morris. Dave, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. As we were kind of discussing earlier, my dad retired from the Air Force. My mom volunteers a lot with Wounded Warriors and up at Walter Reed. And your storytelling regarding post-traumatic stress disorder, what you went through, and just as importantly, what you have learned others go through, is just something that it needed to be put into the world in the way you did. It's not the obviously the first book ever, but the way you wrote it, having come from, I've been a Marine, I've also been a journalist, and I am a professional communicator. Just congratulations on getting this out there, and thank you for putting this into the world. Oh, thanks, Chris. My, my pleasure. I, I kind of wanted to start off right in the thick of it and work our way backwards, just to give listeners an idea of the intensity. So I want to talk about the incident that kind of sparked this all. So tell us about this, you know, you're on the Humvee and, and what kind of really triggered the, the reactions that you've had in this book? Yeah, the, the kind of central event that I, that Burke kind of revolves around, um, you know, and I was in Iraq for about 10 months total, spread out over three years. So I, I kind of, I collected probably a half dozen um, near-death experiences there, um, which is sort of what happens, you know, if you hang out in bad, if you hang out in Fallujah, you know, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be exposed to, to, uh, to traumatic events. But the, 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 the event that keeps kind of echoing and ringing throughout the book um, is in October, in October 10th, 2007, I was in Baghdad. This is during the surge, um, you know, when things were sort of changing in Iraq towards the end of the, the, Ameri- the big American war there. Uh, and I was on a, on a patrol in this neighborhood called Sadia, and we were radioed from headquarters to go check out this um, street that was on fire and sort of figure, take a look at it and see what was going on. So we, we went in a convoy to this street that was burnt, that was being burned down. And as the convoy turned on to, into the cul- what turned out to be a cul-de-sac, the, uh, or a dead end, the, the patrol leader figured out that we were sort of trapped there. And so the whole patrol had to turn around. And as we were turning around, my Humvee backed up over an IED um, a bomb, an old mortar round that had been buried in some trash on the side of the road. And it blew off the back uh, hatch, the trunk of the Humvee, and uh, blew up the right rear wheel and lit the Humvee on fire. So all the, so our Humvee was burning, all the smoke was pouring into the cabin, uh, the windows were, were fogging over. And eventually, uh, we didn't get out of the Humvee, um, someone came up and put the fire out. Um, but eventually, after over the course of about 20 minutes, we were able to extricate uh, the Humvee from 
from the cul-de-sac that we were on and make our way back to patrol base, our patrol base. But that took about a half an hour. Um, and every, and I didn't realize this at the time, but everybody in the Humvee with me had been, had lost their hearing, uh, except for me, even though I was like second closest to where the, uh, the IED was. Um, so went, went back. And then, uh, after that IED strike, I went to, uh, back to the fob, back to the patrol base to get, uh, checked out. And then a week later I was back in California, um, you know, trying to live a normal life again. Yeah. And, and once that happened, I mean, I guess within the next couple of days, week, two weeks, did you know the gravity of that single moment? Did it, did it hit or did it take a long time? No, the thing I noticed, like my, uh, my body sort of changed a little bit in the immediate aftermath of the event. And I didn't like talking. I mean, there's sort of that old cliched phrase of living on borrowed time. And you know, I'd had some other close calls before, but I knew the IED strike is kind of like was the biggest killer of, of, of Americans in Iraq. And so I knew that I had come very close to to the end. And so like but I could so I could feel like the blood in my veins felt different. Uh, I felt like nervous, like, you know, I, it was like a wedding day kind of feeling almost like uh, I just feel out of kilter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I felt in black and white and the rest of the world felt like it was in color kind of thing. I felt just a little bit. Uh, you know, out of place. And um, but really, I mean, the, the funny thing is, is when you're in the war zone or when you're in the middle of like a traumatic experience, like a disaster relief or, you know, immediate aftermath of the tsunami, your your body's just more in survival mode. And then when you get home and, and things normalize a little bit and you get back to the regular workaday world, that's when um, that's kind of where the, the weirdness um, kind of takes hold. Yeah, you know, there was a line in your book. You said, in Iraq, you were always just about to die. Get over it. And I just wonder, so you were there, I mean, as a Marine, and then when you were doing your journalistic portion of it, this one event changed things. But having been there for a long time previously, I wonder, do you ever get used to that feeling of you're always one inch away from death and just get used to it? Um, yeah, you don't get used to it in the normal sense. I think what happens is because it's a different, uh, you know, as you might imagine, being in a war is a different vein of human experience. You know, it's as different as being sober and, uh, you know, being drunk to, to use kind of a crude example. And it's a, your body works differently. You're more on edge and you kind of get a thicker skin and but people that have been in combat zones for a long time you know it just you know it, it just changes you and being exposed and the other thing about you know being in a war like being exposed to the elements not having any privacy sleeping on hard ground most nights and, and working you know working your ass off for months it just you know it's a huge it can be a huge life changing experience which is sort of obvious but it also can be this growth experience it just changes you uh, and challenges you in a new way. And, you know, and there were a lot of positive developments for me that came out of the war that changed me in a good way. You know, there was kind of, because, um, and this isn't true for all traumatic events, but interestingly, I know a lot of people that if you go to a war and then come back, it is definitely, you know, a coming of age and a rite of passage and you, and you come back and you have, you can have a, you know, greater feeling of confidence and a sense of yourself. Cause you, you know, cause you can say to yourself, you know, I've been through some shit, man. I've seen history in fast forward right before my eyes and I survived, you know, this incredibly taxing event and, you know, and, and I'm alive and I have my wits about me. 
And so you can, in a way, depending on how, you know, the perspective you take on it, you can you can walk away from a situation like a, a, a war in the Middle East and come back with, a, I think, a greater sense of yourself. Uh, and, you know, like you've kind of been, you know, case hardened by uh, the worst circumstances that, that, that life can throw at you and, and you survive. Where else do you go where you are willingly, voluntarily putting yourself perhaps in life and death situations? I mean, where you're going to look at that and say at any moment, this could be it. And you ha you're forced to deal with some things that we have created this perfect little bubble in the world where we don't ever have to deal with that. And very small inconveniences set us off kilter completely. And I almost think, you know, we need, some of us need to be exposed to more, not, not to that extreme, but to put things in perspective. Yeah. And I think that that's, what's interesting about, um, it's interesting because I, post-traumatic stress disorder, and I kind of get into this in the book, the history of the diagnosis, it, uh, PTSD is in many ways an American disorder, uh, in the sense that there were numerous, uh, moments in history when the diagnosis could have could have been invented could have been recognized some sort of mental disorder post-war mental disorder could have been uh, acknowledged by psychiatrists but it happened in America over the course of the 1970s because America is the one place it's you know we're very isolated from most of the conflict-ridden parts of the world and so when veterans in America and this is true for every war in American history except for the Civil War or like the American Revolution all all American veterans go and fight thousands of miles away from home and then they return and they really stick out. And, you know, Vietnam veterans really stuck out in the 60s and 70s. And today, Iraq veterans and Afghanistan war veterans come back and they have this whole realm of experience, this whole part, this whole huge chapter of their lives that stateside Americans have a hard time getting their arms around. They just don't understand it. Um, and in what this one VA psychiatrist who's been treating uh, PTSD for decades said the a lot of times the, the key issue with PTSD is what sort of opportunities exist for the survivor to be understood? What, what are the opportunities for understanding? Uh, and in, Amer in America, the opportunities are kind of few and far between, you know, very less than one percent of Americans served in the military. Um, and so it's difficult to find people that. Uh, that sort of have a common lexicon, a common language. Uh, and interestingly, just, um, you know, as a comparison, as a control uh, sample, uh, you know, like the UK, Great Britain, that's m far less the case. Like they, uh, London was bombed during World War II. So there's always been kind of a greater sense um, in Great Britain and in Europe because World War I and World War II were both fought there. There is a greater sense of war's cost. And, uh, and I think, veterans, particularly in Great Britain, don't feel quite as like as much of an outsider and don't feel might not feel quite so weird because, um, you know, there's a greater, uh, you know, it's a, the Middle East is a lot closer to, to Great Britain right. and, and Afghanistan as well. And there's a greater historical uh, cultural memory uh, of these sorts of things. Whereas, as you just said, in America, it's very, you know, protected and insulated and it's really hard to you know, you do feel like an alien when you come back. A number of uh, veterans I spoke to, one veteran I spoke to in particular, um, said that she felt like a Martian when she came back. Wow. 
And man, I really want to get into that part about kind of when you came back. There's a great line in your book that I want to talk about. But there's another thing that I've all not always, but for years, I'd say maybe since September 11th or soon thereafter, talking to my dad, who's a veteran. And he even said at one point, he said, you know, I think a lot of positive would happen in this country if there was a draft or if people were forced to serve in some capacity, because it gives it just gives you a much greater respect for many things. Government officials might have they'd be less trigger happy, if you will. And so maybe that kind of set my thinking in motion. But you said the country as a whole continues to exhibit certain aspects of post-traumatic stress, including a compulsion to reenact the events of September 11th in movies and television, as well as nurturing obsessions with homeland security and surveillance that, according to many military analysts, is out of proportion with the actual actual threat and smacks of a kind of national hypervigilance. And that line stuck out to me so much because it's noticeable. We we spend so much money on military. Anything happens, right? Any small little thing, we we will go to the ends of the earth. And I understand there's a strength in that. But it also cripples our economy. It leaves us less resilient. It makes us the, you know, the bad guys in a global world. I mean, there's a lot of issues when it comes to blowing everything out of proportion and really just, you know, we're going to use every means necessary to ensure our bubble-like world. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Well, yeah, in general, I agree. I mean, my it's interesting because the book is, is about two things, um, the way trauma transforms us and the way that, that PTSD as a diagnosis has transformed the culture. Um, and I think with respect to 9-11, uh, you know, the, I think people are in, in a way the country is still um, sort of, set, you know, trapped. I think it's foolish to sort of uh, diagnose the entire country with a mental health disorder and say all of the United States has PTSD because of 9-11, because that's ridiculous. But there are elements of the post-traumatic state that seem to be echoing throughout the culture, even though, um, you know, that was the attack was 14 years ago now. Um, but I agree. And it's sort of interesting, our continued, you know, military response and our, uh, you know, in my mind, uh, excessive militarization of our foreign policy is really interesting. You know, and there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, it's partly just the habit that we've fallen into post-World War II, um, you know, but you have to accept the fact that that our military budget, if you added up all of the military budgets in the in the world, we still we spend of all the defense spending in the entire world, we spend 50% of it. So we outspend wow. the nearest, you know, the 20 nearest competitors in terms of um, defense spending, like China, Japan, the UK, we out, we outrank them all. So there is this kind of, you know, I, you know, I'm not clear on the exact, on what the ideal military state that we would be in right now. Um, but it is interesting, interesting to me that we continue to look toward the military to solve um, virtually any foreign policy challenge we have, you know, and, and what's going on in Yemen right now. There's, you know, talk of, you know, and we have troops back on the ground in Iraq. And so there's this really curious repetition, what what, what you might call a Freudian repetition compulsion that that keeps we keep repeating a lot of the same uh, ideas and a lot of the same policies over time. And, and uh, it, you know, it's hard to say that, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that, but I think part of it is our inability to 
um, kind of move on and and come up with new ideas with how to how to interact in the world. Yeah, and and I think it kind of goes into I don't want to necessarily say fear mongering, and I don't want to come across as hey, I want to live in a scary world. I like my comfort and I like my safety. I just, as you mentioned, think we have to consider the options and consider the repercussions of operating at such a heightened state, at such a militarized state and things like that. So kind of what you summed up. Now, another thing I wanted to go over with you, there's a passage in your book that stopped me cold in my tracks. It talked about what it was like for you returning from war. And it made me think about just how removed we all can be from what's going on in the world. You said, I returned home in 2007 with a powerful feeling of alienation from my countrymen. Freshly deplaned from what I understood to be the defining event of my generation, I discovered to my great surprise that no one back home held this view or seemed to have given much thought on the war. When this didn't happen, I was disappointed. And I just, when you come back and that hits you, do you feel, was the disappointment in, hey, people don't understand what's going on and appreciate what I put my life on the line for? Um, it was that and, and some, a lot of it was related to the politics of the war and the fact that, uh, I mean, I had voted for George W. Bush the first time and then I went to Iraq and saw um, Marines being sent to die in the streets of Fallujah for really stupid reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, and I saw their lives being uh, used in a very wasteful, uh, unwise manner. And, and that was April 2004. I was, there, I was there April through June 2004. And then Abu Ghraib happened uh, in May 2004. And, so, and then I came back early summer and then... Four months later, in November 2004, uh, we re America reelected Bush and put him back in the White House. So that was and I remember the the reelection of President Bush for me was just a heavy event because I just could not believe that after all I had seen, after all the lies that had been told, all the deceptions that had been practiced on the country and, you know, and the, and the Marines that I had seen die and, and be wounded for really stupid, uh, unfor criminally unforgivable uh, negligence, um, you know, tactical strategic ne negligence. It just made me really angry. And I didn't, I couldn't communicate that anger. It felt like I had a secret that I couldn't quite tell people. Yeah. I, I mean, in, in some ways coming back from a war is like a kind of time travel. You come back to America and it feels like you've been gone for like 10 years. Life moves at a different pace. The language has changed. People seem the clothes seem to be different. The morals have changed. It feels there's an out of placeness um, that is that is uh, beyond. I mean, I just talk about the politics, but any virtually any veteran of war when they come back feels like something very basic to them has changed, um, and there is this sense of feeling like a Martian. And you know, uh, and another another way I describe coming back for more, trying to talk about it is it's, it's almost like trying to lip read underwater like at the bottom of a pool, you're trying to communicate to somebody. Mm -hmm. There's just, the words just don't quite exist to communicate the, the full impact and the, the full sensory experience of, of being in a war zone. And so when I came back, it was a, a failure on a number of fronts. It was a failure for me 
um, to to communicate and even to relate to my fellow Americans the the the, the experience I'd been through, and then there was also just a basic existential problem of like, um, you know, I just went through this really heavy experience and I don't know, I don't quite know what it is yet. And I don't know how to relate to the regular workaday world anymore. We'll be right back to this interview after a quick word from our sponsors. Can you believe it's already February? Do you have a new year's resolution that you've already given up on? Well, I got a new one for you. Let's learn something new. Let's invest in yourself this year and start learning at lynda.com. You get a free 10-day trial by going to lynda.com slash smart people. lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, business entrepreneurship, WordPress, Photoshop. Do you have a website? You need to build one. Learn how on lynda.com. You trying to start a business? Learn the best marketing tips. lynda.com slash smart people, of course. Give it a test run, a free 10-day trial, and get unlimited access to every course. I'll tell you, there's two courses on there that I really loved. One is a course called Getting Things Done. And also there's one that's Breaking Out of a Rut. Both of those things just seemed like a great Kickstarter for 2015. They're in the show notes. I highly recommend them. Invest in yourself. Indulge that curiosity. Sign up for a free 10-day trial to lynda.com by going to lynda.com slash smart people. Go ahead, learn something new in 2015. Yeah, and that, let's go into that because I think you can, you can really teach me and our listeners and a lot of the world a lesson. And I say that in not a, you know, stand there and preach, but I am really interested in your unique experience as the same as a number of our, our veterans. But what is your mindset when you come back and you see, for example, I get upset because... I have to sit at a stoplight, like literally that's my, you know, or sit in traffic or uh, be on hold on a phone or whatever it might be. I guess a couple of questions. One, do you ever reintegrate to the point where those things still upset you or are you just forever changed where everything is put in its place? And then also, how does the change from war make you, you know, when you, if you had a soapbox and you could get up and say, people, listen, this is what's important. This is what's you need to pay attention to. What would that be? As far to to answer the second question first, I think in terms of what I would like Americans um, and people know generally, I guess I'm always surprised when I come back because people, it, I sort of think, man, your your world is really really small compared to to how I think of my world now, and I wish. As much as anything, I wish Americans, uh, more Americans had passports and would travel um, to, to Mexico, to Peru, to Morocco, wherever, and get a greater sense of how there's a, to me, there's a, one of the, for me, one of the, the big uh, talking points about post-traumatic stress disorder in terms of my experience was the difference between how Americans view themselves and the way the rest of the world views America in terms of our military presence is huge. The only people who don't think Americans have an imp- that America has an empire are Americans. Um, wow, you know, and and there's this really weird sense when you go to the rest of the world, people are, you know, people in um, Mexico know. And you know, I, I was in Costa Rica like four months ago. People in Costa Rica know who the, you know, a lot of people in Costa Rica know who the Speaker of the House is in the United States, and they know who the President is, and they know all about our political process. And yet even a lot of America, they'll know more than most Americans will. So there is this strange sense that people 
understand that we are an empire and that we have this incredible reach and power and influence both economically and militarily. And most Americans are, can't be bothered um, because they're more interested in the NFL and they're more interested in the reality show they, they're watching. And so that to me is really, um, you know, I, I was really disappointed when I came back from America because I, I think we're, uh, I was disappointed for a number of reasons, but I, I learned, uh, I got some knowledge about America that I didn't really want to have, which is that we're not a very introspective nation. We're not a very retrospective nation. And, you know, I don't think we, we've learned any from, anything from Iraq. I don't think we, we learned a single thing. I mean, you know, we're not people still call for the invasion uh, of Iraq and still uh, your average American still will advocate for um, for military action overseas as if, you know, Iraq never happened. Um, but to answer your first question, I think one of the one and on a more personal level for everyone, you know, when you survive a traumatic event, I think one thing you have to understand is that the regular world and the way your way of being in the world before the trauma no longer exists. And in order the, the road to happiness for you and the road to health for you is one of personal change and adjustment and trying to think about, OK, what are some things I can do to uh, manage uh, symptoms if I have them? And how can I what positive change can I make in my life to live a more full life while, you know, while I'm on this earth um, in light of having almost died? And, and for me, that was you know, a lot of my life lessons uh, were, you know, to try to value relationships more and try to be more honest and be thankful uh, and to be more emotionally honest with people, whereas I might have been more might have restrained myself more or been more, um, you know, a little bit more aloof um, because, you know, you don't really know kindness and, 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 and generosity with your friends and your colleagues is is one of the few things that you have that you can always give back to people that's this this you know renewing it resource and for me because i almost died on a couple of occasions i I think about trying to be more uh, emotionally authentic and emotionally generous um with my friends and and to you know go out of my way to do to do a friend a favor um and also there are in terms of more specific concrete personal behaviors that I took on. Um, you know, I, action movies have always really bothered me and violence, uh, in the media has always really bothered me. So one thing I do is I don't go to action movies anymore. Um, I drive a lot less cause driving can be stressful to me cause of, you know, reminds, reminds me of IED attacks and, and going on patrol in Baghdad. And so you have to, um, you know, for every sur- every survivor of trauma, you sort of have to look through stuff and try to identify stuff that triggers you and stresses you out and manage those those stimuli a little bit better. And for me, that's why I don't, you know, all the Iraq movies that have come out, I haven't seen, you know, the only one, I mean, like the, the Hurt Locker, for example, mm-hmm. because action movies are really triggering for me mm-hmm. and make me really angry and upset. Um, like I when I watched the Hurt Locker, I watched it on DVD and I watched it backwards uh, a couple scenes at a time spread out over a week just so I could s- kind of understand what the movie was about. Wow. Um, but, but watching it beginning to end was never going to happen because it would have been really triggering, um, you know, and would have, would have ruined my week Wow. at least to have watched it front to back. One thing I noticed is all these, I mean, there's a number, I didn't even have to look anything up and I came up with seven, 
movies with this premises of war just and really graphic i mean most recently american sniper but you have lone survivor zero dark 30 black hawk down saving private ryan you have hurt locker i mean recently i just saw that american sniper i think it did the most ever in an initial weekend or something like that yeah in january yeah, yeah. i think it's still oh, number okay. one at the box office right now and it and i i did see it and i have some thoughts on it we can talk about it um but it did make me think what is this obsession? Why, even myself, why did I want to see that so badly? I'm try, I'm still trying to wrestle with it. Is it because we feel like that gives us a more global view, although that might be perverse? Is it that because we seek out things we don't understand? Another reason why people like shows such as The West Wing or, you know, Homeland, because it's just this other world. Uh, are we naturally violent people? Is it this sense of Americanism? What are your thoughts on it? Um, well, with respect to war movies, I think there are a number of reasons why um, we like them so much. And I think, Amer- I mean, no one watches a war movie like an American, for starters. Um, and I think uh, there are a number of reasons why war movies do so well at the box office um, in the United States. Um, and, and the most basic of those is that the eye is a really hungry, um, you know, beast. It always looks for exciting, um, kinetic, pyrotechnic, um, exciting visual stimuli. And war is full of toys. You got all the greatest toys on display in full tilt. You got guns, which Americans love. We've got hell. You got helicopters. You got tanks. You got explosions. You got grit. You got drama and so there's all of these things that are kind of baked into the basic even the most basic war movie that audiences respond to you know it, it it's really it's in your face it's very kinetic and exciting and so there's a basic almost like pornographic um aspect to it that it it, it appeals to us on a very basic level it's the same it's it's really no different than the same impulse that causes people to rubberneck on the freeway you want you don't want to look, but you can't not look. Right. Um, and so there's this there's sort of a part of me that doesn't even you know, I used to watch war movies all the time. And like I tried to watch Black Hawk Down again recently and I own the DVD and I couldn't even do it. Like for me personally, it's just too triggering and too weird and too and puts me too immersive and puts me back in a place that I don't want to be. Um, and that's one thing that 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 I tell, you know, people about war movies is. I, you know, and, and American Sniper is an interesting example because it's set in Ramadi, and I and I happen to have spent a week um, at the very same patrol base that Chris Kyle uh, was was stationed at, and I spent a lot of time in Ramadi where um, Chris Kyle made a lot of his kills. So I don't, um, I don't, I, you know, I was there, and so I'm not really interested in seeing Hollywood's version of it. Yeah. Um, and even if I were, it's going to be really upsetting and really annoying. Um, to have to watch that because I, you know, the, uh, I, don't, I don't particularly, I didn't particularly like Chris Kyle. I don't think I didn't like the book. It's it, it um, the book to me embodies a lot of what I think of as flaws in the American uh, character. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of uh, Chris Kyle says a lot of really uh, derogatory and, ra- and frankly racist things about Iraqis. He calls them savages over and over again, mm-hmm. um, which to me is. Um, you know, you can be the samurai warrior ideal was always respect your enemy and love your enemy so that you can better defeat him. So you can better understand his mindset. And so I don't look at him when when people talk about Chris Kyle as some sort of pinnacle of martial virtue. It makes me laugh because mm-hmm. I knew a lot of Marine snipers that were much more reflective 
much more thoughtful and didn't hold racist uh, thoughts. You know, didn't ha- hold these really negative racist thoughts about Arabs. And so I don't, you know, that movie in particular, I'm now, you know, I, I will probably see in five years after the dust has settled. But um, every every time one of these Iraq movies comes out, it just annoys the shit out of me because people will will act as if they were in Iraq and that they've learned something from a war. Yeah. But you didn't. If you watch a war movie. You haven't learned anything about the war. You've watched a fucking movie. Yeah, actually, okay. Frank. Yeah, no, no, no. It, that that brings up a good thing. I, I have two questions now that are burning. One, I know you don't watch a lot of them, but how much truth is there behind these movies? I mean, so for somebody who's, you know, pretty far removed and never been to war, live in this bubble, I watch these things, they're gory, and you see people get shot and all that, and I'm like, wow. And they, they have, you know, they work with the wives of the people involved. You, you feel like they try to keep it as true as possible. Well, you know, realism in war films is kind of the lingua franca of Hollywood. They spend, and that's one reason they're really triggering for me, is they, if you go see a, a movie in a great IMAX theater sure. or, you know, one of the Lucas THX, whatever they call it, you know, you're the, they're so immersive and you're getting such sensory overload and they design these things, they design these movies as like, you know, heroin shots of action. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like crack cocaine, all this like we're going to give you all the gore, all the action, all the fight, you know, um, fighting and, and moving that that you can take. And so for me, that's why the Hollywood and this holds true as well for the first person shooter video games like the realism. They have gotten so good at doing that, that it's really overwhelming for me, um, you know, as a, uh, as someone as a survivor of war mm-hmm. that I don't want to. Um, I think it's a mistake to continue to revisit things that resemble your trauma. And so I don't, I don't recommend to any veteran to go see these movies. I think they're awful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I think generally speaking, I don't know. Um, you know, I don't, I don't see, you know, these movies don't, they're not realistic in the sense that they compress all the action. So it's, it's, you know, gunfight, 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 reflection, call the wife, gunfight, gunfight, gunfight. Right. And they show, you know, they break it up a little bit, but it's all action. And the, and the thing they don't show is that, you know, if you're doing, uh, you know, the army did 15 month deployments to Iraq. And so, and you, and there's only, you know, if you added up all the, the trigger time, you're talking about maybe, you know, an hour for, for a lot of deployments. So they don't show the boredom, which is just crushing and mind, you know, mind breaking. And they don't show all of all of the downtime and all the things that happen, all the, all the times that you're sweating and the tedium of it. They mm-hmm. just show you, you know, it's like pornography. Mm-hmm. People, it's just they, they show you the, the most uh, profane and violent scenes. They don't mm-hmm. show you all the the changes that happen. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the, the American war movie, as it's been um, practiced and, and created in the last 10 years, has been, I think, a giant step back. Um, you know, and I, I agree with Seth, Seth Rogen. I haven't seen American Sniper yet, but I feel like, you know, as a Marine, a lot of these movies that don't show, they don't really show the cost of war mm-hmm. and are glorifying, um, you know, someone who's killing, uh, you know, sniping is an, is an incredibly traumatic job mm-hmm. to, cause they're some of the few soldiers that actually see up close and personal, the people they kill most, you know, pilots, drone, drone operators, artillerymen don't see the people they kill. So they're protected from that. And so I, I think, um, you know, we need to address and really, you know, think about that in a, in a more sensitive, more humane, more um, morally mature way. I mean, one of the very few movies that war movies that I will still watch is the Thin Red Line, uh, Terrence Malick's World War Two movie from 1998, because it actually shows it showed like there's a, a battle scene in the beginning 
in a battle scene like in the second act, but they show long passages, long scenes of the soldiers thinking about what's happened and, you know, whether the war has poisoned their soul, how they relate to their wife. You know, one of the soldiers gets dumped while he's fighting, you know, while he's in the war. And so mm-hmm. I don't I don't think and the Hurt Locker is kind of, this, you know, a, a similar negative thing. I don't I don't think of um, Zero Dark Thirty, the Hurt Locker, uh, American Sniper. I don't consider to be morally mature films. And now it's time for our awesome sponsors who support Smart People Podcast. Valentine's Day is coming up, and if your wife, girlfriend, significant other, partner, whoever it may be, tells you they don't want anything for Valentine's Day, what they're really saying is, get me something for Valentine's Day. Don't worry, though, because we have the solution to your problem. This week, we are sponsored by Sherry's Berries. Sherry's Berries offers giant, freshly dipped strawberries starting at just $19.99. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone, and type in our code SMARTPEOPLE. For our listeners, you can even double the berries for just $10 more, but you have to use our code SMARTPEOPLE. Sherry's Berries come delivered to your house dipped in white, milk, and dark chocolatey goodness. They're topped with chocolate chips decorative swizzle or nuts they are amazing they are the biggest berries i've ever seen they're fresh they're juicy they're just delicious i've used sherry's berries for years for both my girlfriend and for my mom anytime i want them to feel special not just on valentine's day but any day of the year i use sherry's berries so what do you have to do Here's the only way to get this amazing Valentine's Day deal. Giant, juicy, freshly dipped strawberries starting at $19.99. Or double the berries for just $10 more. Visit berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and type in smart people. That's right. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone, and enter our code smart people. What are you waiting for? Order your giant, delicious Sherry's Berries today. Well, and you mentioned, I, I I think this is another thing, with Chris Kyle and your strong opinions about him, prior to this interview we were talking, you said kind of, you know, I'm a grunt. And I know for a lot of us, and we look at it and say, good, we want grunts out there, right? We want people on the front line who are just going to kill and they have this mindset protect the homeland because if they're flinching in that then what if they miss something and it's the next terror attack you know terrorist attack on on my house or something like that so the mindset i know i watched american sniper and i enjoy i mean i enjoyed it i i I don't want to say that but the fact that i you feel this patriotism and you see i mean there's a scene where he has to shoot a child and and it's i mean it's miserable right even you're if you watch that and you're not affected you're not human but the child has a an IED and you see him walking up to a bunch of american soldiers and our natural american mindset is well he was going to do harm so you know it was a necessity and yeah and i guess that's you know, where i where i um diverge is that the, in the movie and i've seen the trailer mm-hmm. i think we're talking about the same scene they portray it as this very clear, like clearly he's walking over with the trigger in his hand. And it's never that clear when you're in when you're in theater, when you're right. in a wartime situation. And that's what the the situations are always way more ambiguous, way more complex. 
and take a lot more technical understanding uh, to actually get into the, the moral heart of these issues. And so that's where I object to these movies is they make it out as if it's this simple case of them trying to kill us and we're going to kill them first because we had to. Sure. And in particular with uh, American Sniper, um, you know, I think Chris Kyle was in Ramadi at a time when the surge was happening and the Anbar Awakening was happening. Um, and one of the important lessons that I learned, life lessons I learned about Iraq, was that it, the progress we made in Iraq, which a lot of it has been reversed by ISIS, right? Mm -hmm. But the progress that we made and the, and the good things that happened in Iraq happened at the end when we stopped trying to kill people so much and actually worked with the Iraqi people and understood what they wanted wow. and helped them achieve some sort of uh, voice and political coherence and safety for their communities. And all of the stuff where we were beating Al-Qaeda and conditions improved Iraq in Iraq happened not because we were killing people, but because we were actually working and talking uh, and developing uh, the local communities who themselves um, pushed Al-Qaeda out and said, no, we're not going to deal with you anymore. We didn't actually kill our way to, to victory in Iraq. We helped the Iraqi people. And that's sort of one of the, the basic principles of counterinsurgency theory. And so it's really annoying for me for this movie to be depicting this guy as this, this killer savior, um, you know, when what was actually the real story of what was going on in Iraq is just doesn't make a very good action movie, but it was way more important. I mean, the people, you know, Chris Kyle acts like he saved a lot of lives, but the people that saved the most lives in Iraq were the tribal engagement officers who went out, talked to sheikhs all day long, cut deals, hired locals picked up the garbage and improved the city block by block by actually it's like a lot like police work going yeah. out there and developing relationships and partnering with um, the Iraqi nationals to, you know, and, and to squeeze out Al Qaeda, you know, bit by bit. So I don't, you know, the idea of, I, I hate the, the moral oversimplification that these movies and they, and you know, war movies are just a huge part of the problem. One, and I've argued this elsewhere, war movies, um, cinematic violence and kinetic violence like of like of that sort is why we got into Iraq in the first place. Yeah. A lot of people feel like, um, you know, it was going to be this giant action movie and we were going to be, it was going to be this glorious shoot 'em up like the okay corral. And that, you know, I'm here to tell you, I spent a lot of time in war zones and that ain't how it is. Yeah. No, I, I really, that was a, a great way of putting it. I mean, in that time frame, kind of even you changed my mindset on it in general there's another thing, and I don't want to make the focus. Yeah, and I don't mean to okay. like. I'm not. This may sound like insulting to people, but no. I, I I just want Hollywood and I want storytellers to get better and tell stories that are more authentic, uh, more emotionally rich, uh, and more morally ambiguous. I mean, the best war movies that I've been that I've watched are not these moral. They're not these fairy tales. Sure. And so I'm just disappointed because Clint Eastwood's a smart guy, and I really liked Flag of Flags of Our Fathers, and I liked his. I really liked his movie about the Japanese side of the war. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the Sands of Iwo Jima, I think, or no, it wasn't Sands of Iwo Jima. I forget the name of that. The, there was a sequel that he made from the Japanese perspective that was way more sympathetic and actually showed the war from the enemy's side. And so I'm just tired of seeing these these cartoon movies that that are that are you know exist. They're like moral six-year-olds right well especially because that's what a lot of us base our understanding on you said they're so realistic that you can't watch them so we we watch them and you said and we go oh i kind of have an understanding of what's going on it then shapes our opinion shapes our actions right. and who we vote for and how things go and it's just so leading 
and I don't want to stick on the, the subject of movies too long, but this also... Well, movies are important. Movies are actually play a central role in the history of post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. And, you know, as Don DeLillo, the novelist, pointed out, movies aren't just the dominant art form of the 20th century. They're part of the 20th century mind. Wow. So they're central to how we conceive of ourselves. They're central to how we perceive consciousness nowadays. Um, and one argument I make in the book is that, um, you know, the book is about how trauma transforms us, but it's also about how PTSD has transformed the culture. And one of the ways that's happened is if you look at um, movies and movie making in the 1990s, you had this spate of films that all um, use PTSD, not just as a content of the movie, but actually a narrative strategy. So, so movies like Memento, Groundhog Day, Pulp Fiction, all had these scrambled and disjunctive um, uh, you know, sort of a uh, card uh, flipped up card deck of, of narrative where different scenes were scrambled. And it was as if the narrator, as if the movie itself were embodying the, the condition of post-traumatic stress disorder, if ah. that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does, especially because I love a lot of those movies. And yeah, I Memento is Memento's one of, you know, I own the DVD. It's one of my favorite movies. And I think it's the ultimate PTSD movie because it shows the the narrator um going through reliving his traumatic experience and trying to make sense of it in this very um confused way that's hmm. not you know does the 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 narrative time of the movie doesn't go a to b to c it goes d f a b it bounces all yeah. over no, I, I love that movie. So going on with this movie theme, I did want to bring this up because I got into a, a fairly heated argument with a friend of mine. Are you familiar with Lone Survivor? I'm sure you probably haven't seen it. but the, Didn't see the movie. Um, but you know Loosely familiar with the story. In a nutshell, and you probably know this much, but you have these Navy SEALs you know, out there. They are discovered by what the movie portrays them as just some locals. And they have a decision to make, which is to kill them or let them go and run the risk of them running back and telling the tribe. And what happens is they let them go, and then they're then hunted down and killed, all but one of them. And so in that scenario, somebody's going to say, look, this movie showed that the, the, the soldiers made the compassionate decision and paid the ultimate price. I, I'm really interested to hear kind of what are how do you feel about that narrative? Um. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I'm not as familiar with the with the story as I'd like to be. Okay. Um, but I think, you know, a very similar thing happened in the Gulf War. There was a British memoir called Bravo Two Zero um, that that describes a very similar incident where uh, a British Special Forces patrol was discovered in a similar way. Um, and the thing is, you know, with these sort of decisions, and this is sort of at the at the core of the 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 PTSD story, is that you know, soldiers are presented with these, they have to make decisions and, you know, the war happens in seconds, but you live with it for, for years and for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and you know, the, the, the Navy SEALs and that are depicted in, in Lone Survivor, I think, you know, they, you only know that they made the wrong choice when they were discovered, you know, and I think they, you know, they they made what they thought was the good call at the time. And there were probably other pressures um, that were working on them at the time. Uh, and they they didn't know for sure what those kids were going to do. Right. Um, and I think they, you know, obviously, um, you know, I know I we need to look at the book to know to make a better um, to referee this a little better. But I think they you know, they obviously made the bad the, the wrong call, but they didn't know that at the time. And in all likelihood, you know, it's hard to say 
you know, they could have, they could have in theory captured the kids and held them, but then that, that would have taken up, that would have drained some of their resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and also if they'd shot the kids, they would have had to live with that for the rest of their lives. And, exactly. You know, I interviewed a number of Marines who, who ended up shooting Iraqi children and that event, like it's hard, it's hard to understand, but like actually killing a person, um, there is a, the science, the peer reviewed science on it shows that there's a very nearly 100% chance that you end up developing PTSD symptoms because not because you were nearly killed, but because you killed another person, because it's very, very um, morally toxic for um, modern people, for modern men to kill another human being. So, yeah, um, yeah, I, I can't. It's a, I mean, with war, it's it's a, a series of Hobson's choices. It's a, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. And that's right. why that's one of the other reasons why war is so um, morally complex and, and morally vexing is that there are, there is no right decision. There are only consequences, you know? I, yeah, I mean, it is, it's one of those things where damned if you do damned, if you don't, I think is the way to put it. Now I do and want I think to, to, to just hold it for a second. I mean, that's one reason why, um, soldiers and a lot of returning veterans, um, even if they had great service and the war went comparatively well for them, feel sort of damned. And in some cases feel sort of uh, like they have some sort of scarlet letter on them is they feel like I did the best I could and I still had awful things happen to me. I must just be a bad person. Mm. And that's something that, that therapists will get into is dealing with what um, they call just just world theory and the idea that good things happen to good people and bad things must happen to bad people. Something bad happened to me. Therefore, I'm a bad person, uh, which is a, you know, a, a bogus way of thinking about yourself. But those are the kind of the moral echoes and moral quandaries that veterans find themselves in over time is like you know i got totally screwed by the universe Mm -hmm. and i was doing my best it must be something about me that i'm cursed yeah you know that was the thought i had when i was reading about your you know the the humvee incident and the explosion is i hate to make this analogy because it sounds so ridiculous but i'm gonna do it anyways um you know, my car got broken into not too long ago. Somebody just smashed a brick through the window, took wow. my stuff, you know, computer. And, and it caused, I mean, you know, not only the monetary loss, but I had to deal with insurance in my car. Just a big inconvenience. And I was really pissed. And I thought, man, if I saw somebody doing that, they better have a gun. Because anything short of that, I'm, I'm, I'm going nuts. And I wonder if in the situation you were in where a bomb goes off, literally... For, to, to take out not only your life, but people around you and people you love and care about. Is anger one of the most consuming uh, emotions or is that just too far removed and instead you have other things going on? Well, with respect to that particular idea attack, uh, anger was not the dominant emotion, I wouldn't say. Um, but there is a similar to to reflect back on you having your car broken into. There are there is a similar for me anyway. There's a, there was a similar set of emotional responses that resembles that. Like when you the first time you're like I've had my car broken into and that that feeling of violation of yeah. like physical sanctity being violated because the car is a very your car is a very personal possession. Mm-hmm. It's a mini little you know bedroom that you drive around in in a sense. And exactly. so when that space is violated, it, it violates your sense of integrity in, a, in your emotional world. And so in some ways that is analogous to um, the IED attack I went to in the sense that it felt it was this sense of my personal world being violated. And when you have a sense of your personal space for lack of a better word being very seriously violated it it changes 
your sense of safety and your sense of relationship to everyone around you. So it's not, you know, and I always tell people that like people it's, you don't always want to say there's no way in hell I could ever, ever understand what it's like to be in a war. Cause that's just not true. There are a lot of wars analogous to a lot of different human situations. And you can understand, you can get very, very, very close to what it's like to understand by reading and really thinking your way into a character and with some movies, you know, some of the better movies like Thin Red Line, really thinking about what it would be like if you were in that exact same circumstance. And you can get I mean, that's what art is for. Art is does, art is the bridge to new experiences and new ways of thinking. And so I always encourage people like don't feel like um, the war you know, war or traumatic experience is this completely Martian realm that you will never, ever, ever have even the slightest insight into because yeah. that's the human beings have this amazing ability to project ourselves into the consciousness of other people. It's called art. Sure. You know, I want to take this time because we didn't talk specifically a lot about the details of PTSD in this interview. And it was, I, it was kind of purposeful for a number of reasons. One, I want to thoroughly implore people to read the book. It's the evil hours. And the reason, because it opens, it opened my mind to a lot of the things that we have to deal with people that are, are in our companies, in our families, our friendships that are dealing with this or similar things. It also, you know, the kind of the worldview. And I wanted to talk about how these experiences shape decisions and, and what I think you can teach the world and Americans on uh, making decisions and what matters. So, and also you did a, an excellent interview on NPR Fresh Air that you go into a little bit more about PTSD. But before I let you go, if there was kind of a theme or a or a lesson you would like people to know about post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, what is the main message that you just wish, you know, I want you to know this because this is a part of our world now. Um, I, I guess first off that um, PTSD is a disease of time and it changes the way uh, survivors experience time um, and it, you don't. Uh, for a lot of PTSD survivors, you don't really experience time. In its worst cases, it ruins your ability to live um, from the past to the present to the future, and you end up kind of tra you can end up trapped in a sort of memory feedback loop where you're, where time almost seems to work in a circular manner. Um, but I guess specifically to bring it down to like a personal level, I think um, it's important for people to to recognize that you know we tend to think of PTSD as a soldier's problem or a veteran's problem. Um, but the most common and most toxic form um, of trauma is rape. And one in five women, uh, about 20% of American women, will be um, raped or attempted experience an attempted rape in their lives. Wow. So if you play that out, you not only know one or two uh, rape victims um, in your personal life, you probably know dozens of them. And so, and the, the PTSD rate for rape victims is very high. It's, it's close to 50% which is two or three times the rate, the PTSD diagnosis rate for soldiers. So, you know, chances are, if you're trying to think, well, how does this relate to my life? Um, there is a 100% uh, chance, uh, unless you live in a monastery, um, that you know a rape victim and that she, he or she has dealt with some very serious issues. And I think, you know, I, I interviewed, as I, when I started this book, uh, a very close friend of mine reached out to me and she said, I'd really like to tell you my story. Um, you know, of, of when I was raped as a young woman. And she very clearly laid out this very, um, very well thought out story of how she was raped and how she survived. 
And for her, we've become a lot closer. And she told me stuff that she'd never, because I was educated about PTSD, she was willing to tell me things that she ne had never told friends before. And since then, we've become a lot closer. And she, you know, my understanding of her experience, even though I'm a dude and it happened to her as a woman, like we have a connection now and the, the community of survivors is a very real thing. So what I what I want people to get out of this book is is the idea of storytelling as this incredible, incredibly powerful medical technology that all of us come equipped with. And so if someone, you know, has something like be a better listener and make yourself available um, to be a good active listener and to listen to someone's story and learn to listen to the, the story, learn to listen better to war stories and to, to veteran stories but also learn how to listen to a rape story. You know, wow. the idea of listening, that's like the worst you can't imagine. That seems like the most awful thing to ever hear about. Mm. But the fact that, that rape survivors, most of whom are women, are unable and are basically discouraged culturally from telling their stories is incredibly damaging. And so I encourage you, you know, if you have a, if you have a friend who's been something through something heavy, if they want to talk about it, um, make yourself available and be, learn to be a better listener. I think that's a fantastic lesson. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on the show, sharing your story. As I mentioned, the book is The Evil Hours, A Biography of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. It's fantastic. Um, the Your literary style and ability to combine the you know that expression as along with your experiences creates a very unique piece and so thank you for that dave is there anywhere else that uh you would like our listeners to go to learn more about you or the book or do you write elsewhere anything like that um well uh, yeah my website theevilhours.com which sort of lays out describes the book in greater detail and then some of the earlier work I've done and then I also just had a piece in the New York Times Sunday Review on the 18th which describes um the VA therapy uh, some of the VA therapies they're using um but the website theevilhours.com is probably a good place to start okay perfect and well, Dave, again, thank you so much. Sorry we went over a little bit in time, but this is a story I feel like um, people really need to hear and some some important lessons. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for, for reading, Chris. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. Have a great day and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. All right. You too. Thanks, Thanks man. Dave. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with David Morris. It was a very open and honest look into both PTSD and the ongoing wars. If you want to learn more about David, you can go to his website, theevilhours.com. Don't forget that his book, The Evil Hours, A Biography of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, is available on Amazon and at your local bookstores. And if you happen to be in the Washington, D.C. area, and you want to go out and meet David, he will be at Politics and Prose on February 4th at 7 p.m. Head over to www.politics-prose.com for more details. I really hope you guys enjoy what Smart People Podcast has been putting out each week. And if you have, please head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave a rating and review there. It truly does help out the show. I know it's a small thing that I ask each week, but it does pay dividends for us. It helps us get guests and all kinds of other great stuff. So thank you guys so much when you go out and do that. Remember, you can always reach out to the show. You can email Chris and I at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or shoot us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. 
We love conversing with you guys, hearing what you think about the show, who you want to hear on the show, all that great stuff. We've got some amazing episodes coming up in the near future, so I'm really excited about that. But before I forget, don't forget that you can nominate Smart People Podcast at the 10th Annual People's Choice Podcast Awards for Best Education Podcast. All you have to do is head over to podcastawards.com. On the front page, you will see a nomination ballot of sorts. Within the education section, you can fill in our podcast name, Smart People Podcast, and our podcast URL, www.smartpeoplepodcast.com, and submit us for Best Education Podcast. We've been nominated the past two or three years, and we truly do appreciate your guys' support with this because it does help get the name out there. So if you could head over to podcastawards.com, vote for us in the education section, I'd really appreciate it. And I will see you guys next week. 